week four of 11 in our series, Believe It, Big Ideas uh, About God. If you missed any of them and you would like to catch up, they're all on uh, line. If uh, you're new here, then we're encouraging people to uh, read alongside uh, what we do here on a Sunday and to uh, meet in small groups. As you go out on the left, there's a table with uh, that logo on the front. Grab one of those and it will tell you how to plug yourself in to those things as well. This week, we look at the doctrine of uh, the fall. What do we mean by the fall? We mean that the world has fallen from what it should have been to what it now is. The world has fallen from what it was intended to be to what we see and observe today. There is a gap, a great abyss, a great chasm between the world as it was created and the world as we know it. It's not as it was intended. And instinctively, Christians and non-Christians alike sense that this world is not all that it should be. Not all that was supposed to come to birth at its, or beyond, or after its creation. In large measure, most people agree it was never meant to be like this. We know by our observation and our experience that this world was made for beauty, for joy, for love, for laughter. We know this world was made, instinctively we know, for something that's good, But at the same time, we overwhelmingly are aware that that good, that beauty, that joy, that life, that laughter is so often obliterated by tragedy and pain and regret. And we live with the tension of how it is and how maybe it once was intended to be. I think I've said before, sometimes I walk or we walk on the the heath not far from our house and uh, wherever you walk on the heath, you can see the hospital as part of the skyline and the maternity block uh, that uh, is six or seven stories, however high it is. You can see wherever you are, you can get your bearings from where you are in that beautiful place by what the direction in which the hospital is. And it's such a vivid reminder for me of the contrast, the tension of the world in which we live. There on the heath on a warm summer's day, the goodness of the world that God has made is palpable. But there at the same time as I walk in that goodness, in those wards, there are people fighting and losing their life. There are relatives being told that a loved one has just died. There are babies being born with life overwhelming challenges. There are people who are being given news that would change their lives from that day for the rest of their days. So you get glimpses of how it was meant to be, all wrapped up in the reality of how it is. The world has fallen. It's not a theory. This is not something that we can just debate kind of in an abstract way. It's the reality of the way you feel today and the way I feel. It's the reality of the struggles that we face, every pain, every unease, every embarrassment, every shame, every regret, all as a result of the world that's fallen, no longer what it was intended to be. And if you look with me at the first few chapters of uh, Genesis there in, in, in the Bibles in front of you, just if you just open them up and you can flick through, the first uh, two chapters of the Bible, chapters 1 and 2, talk about how the world was or why or who was behind the world that was created. The next two chapters, 3 to 4, talk about what the world has become. There's a rhythm to it. 
Chapter 1, God creates a perfect world, and when He saw it all, He saw that it was very good. And at the height of that perfect world, He created man and woman in perfect relationship. That's what Genesis 2 spells out, a perfect relationship of a man who was literally wowed by the woman, and they became one flesh. They were both naked and they felt no shame. A perfect world, a perfect relationship. But then in chapter 3, you get the story of the fall. A perfect world becomes a broken world. A gap has opened up between what was intended and what it has become. And then in chapter 4, the perfect relationship becomes a broken relationship Ultimately, as Cain says to his brother Abel, let's pop out to the field. And there in the field, he kills him. Chapters 1 and 2 are marked by God's action. Chapters 3 and 4 are marked by our action. Because of our actions, this world is no longer how God intended it to be. And it's really important that we grasp what the Bible has to say because it stops us moving into all kinds of errors that tie us up in all kinds of knots. For example, the fall means it's not God's fault. Understanding what we're being taught in these opening chapters reminds us that to blame God with the ease and the swiftness with which both Christian and non-Christian blame Him for things that aren't right in His world when things are wrong is an error on our part. I lost count of the number of times people attempted to comfort us after one of our miscarriages with the idea that God knew best. That somehow it was all part of his will. That our baby died even before he or she had the opportunity of being born. And somehow that was God's best. Really? No. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The idea that God wills and orchestrates or is in some way behind the pain and the suffering of our lives for some mysterious reason best only known to Him is commonly believed. So whenever something goes wrong, we seek someone to blame and we blame Him most easily and most naturally. But that's not the God the Bible reveals. And it's not the God I've come to know and love either. And the doctrine of the fall helps correct our misunderstanding. To remind us that much will happen in our lives that is not God's will and not God's intention or part of His plan. If the Bible tells the story of humanity, we're only in chapter 3 before we see things happening that God neither willed nor intends. God is not the only person who acts in history. And God does not always get his way in the world as he's left it for the moment. God wanted them not to do it. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You must not do it because if you do it, there will be consequences. Straightforward, it's honest, it's open-handed. God always tells the truth. So what did they do? They ate and were surprised by the consequences. How often are we like that? Don't do that. X, Y, and Z. 
go off and you do it. Ooh, X, Y, and Z's happened. We live in this world where we've said no to something where God has said yes. And then so easily and swiftly and quickly, we blame him for the consequences of our own actions. And ever since, we've been busily blaming God for all that is wrong. I urge you, stop blaming God. Some of us here this morning, deep in our hearts, are blaming God for some situation in our lives that we found ourselves in. Stop blaming God. The trouble is we blame God and that puts a barrier between us. We get angry with God and that keeps God at a distance and God in the end is the only one who can sort out the situation we're blaming him for in the first place. And so we get stuck in this misunderstanding. It's all God's fault and we blame him and we're angry with him. And we we might not articulate it like this because we know somehow we shouldn't say that it's all, uh, you know, we shouldn't say that we're angry with God. But some of us live angry with God. Something going on in your life, maybe a long time ago, and you still feel the pain of it, and you're angry with God about it. You'll never find the healing that God has for you, for as long as you hold him responsible in that way. It simply puts up a barrier and gets in the way. Stop blaming God. It's not God's fault. Look with me, will you, at what happened? Genesis chapter 3, page 5, there in in the, the Bibles. Uh, now that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There was a sin, the Bible teaches, that's before Adam and Eve. The serpent, described in Revelation as uh, the devil. The Bible tells us that the devil, uh, who was an angel, rebelled against God in the heavens. And uh, God kicked him out of heaven for his rebellion. And he took with him about a third of the angelic hosts. And uh, we know them now, not as angels, but as demons. And in ordinary ministry, there are demons that are active in our world uh, today. So there was a a sin before Adam and Eve. But what would humanity do in response? Well, it says the devil came and he was crafty and intent on using his craftiness for his demonic purpose. Sometimes we think that the devil won't tempt us, tease us or draw us away. Sometimes we have the audacity to think that we can outsmart him. We all need to remember that he's crafty and he's subtle, and he's nuanced, and he's brought down many a man and woman of far greater spiritual stature than you or me. Never underestimate the enemy. He's clever, cleverer than you, cleverer than me. He's smart, and he's crafty. And in our arrogance, maybe we think, well, I wouldn't have eaten, I I wouldn't have done that. The Bible says, yes, you would. Yes, you would. So be careful. It could have been us. And if you think you're standing firm, be careful. You don't. Or We are all susceptible, all vulnerable. It could have been us. Men, the male pride says, well, it was the woman. They've always been trouble. God says, what can you expect for a rib? Don't be too quick. Don't fall for the assumption that the serpent talked to Eve when Adam was off at the football. Adam, where was he? Verse 6. 
Adam was right there beside her. Who sinned first? Everyone says, ha, Eve sinned first. We all know that. But what was Adam doing while the serpent was talking to Eve? Absolutely nothing. Did he protect her? No. Did he love her? No. Did he stand with her? No. Was he there for her? No. What was he doing? Nothing. At her moment of challenge, at her moment of crisis and tempting, he did nothing. Adam's first sin was not when he also ate the fruit. His first sin was doing nothing when he should have done everything to stand by the woman God had given him. Men, the Bible holds Adam responsible first. When God comes, he says to the man. When God comes, he says to Adam, what's happened? To Adam, where are you? Later on, the Bible, commenting on this passage, again talks about the man holding Adam responsible first. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one woman? No, one man. And death through sin and his death came to all men because all sin. One man. Every time we men don't make a stand, don't protect, don't get involved, every time we're physically present but spiritually and emotionally absent, we identify with Adam. This is not in any way to minimize Eve's contribution, but just to say that there's nothing right here. Adam's first sin was of omission, something he failed to do. Eve's first sin was of commission, something she should not have done. And suddenly they're both lost, hopelessly and utterly lost. And God comes walking in the cool of the day and he cries out the most haunting words that God has ever spoken. Where are you? Words that have echoed down through the ages, for we've been lost ever since and fully shared in their rebellion against God. Lost, alienated. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean that we've become alienated in this world that God has given us? Well, firstly, the fall means alienation from God. God is coming, and what are they doing? They're they're hiding. They've never hidden from God ever before. Now they're hiding. God is coming and they're desperate to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. God is coming and there's an emotion that they've never felt before that you and I are all too familiar with. Suddenly they're afraid. Where did that come from? Where did the fear that reigns in our life came from here. Suddenly they're afraid. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked so I hid God knew where they were. God knew what had happened. And his cry was deep from his heart. Where are you? What's happened to you? Look what you've done. Why on earth have you found yourself in this place? And they are banished from the garden. Their expulsion from the garden gave geographical expression to their spiritual separation from God. Their unfitness and ours to stand before him and enjoy the intimacy of his presence. Suddenly they were lost, alone, and afraid. And that's the story of our world. Lost. Alone. Afraid. But then there was more. Secondly, there was an alienation from themselves. Suddenly Adam and Eve no longer felt comfortable. They felt all uneasy 
about themselves. They'd never felt uneasy ever before. They suddenly were no longer at peace. They were naked and shameful and for the first time ever they tried to to cover themselves in some way. They were no longer happy with themselves and they tried to cover up. The simple acceptance of self had gone. It was the first turmoil of the soul that would plague humanity ever since. But we know what it is to feel shame. And we know what it is to struggle with our worth and our identity ever since we've tried to hide away. An inner struggle, a restlessness. As Isaiah puts it, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest. Alienated from ourselves. And more alienated from others. Notice the nakedness that Adam felt was not simply before God, but before God had come back, they got fig leaves and covered themselves. Suddenly poor Adam felt naked before Eve and vice versa. The breach in their relationship with God so immediately affected their relationship with each other as it does. And Adam felt distanced from Eve and needed to cover himself in her presence. The the relationship is breaking down and so Adam starts to blame everybody and we've been blaming ever since. Notice what Adam said. The woman you put here with me. If it wasn't for that woman, God... We wouldn't be in this mess. It's been a bad day when Kerry says you wouldn't believe what your son has done today. That's what Adam's saying. Your woman, look what your woman has done. It's not my fault your woman did that. It's not my fault Eve, she gave me the fruit. It was her. I wouldn't have had it if she hadn't given it to me. I only did it because she offered it. Blaming, blaming, blaming. And all of us have blamed everybody else ever since. What a change, suddenly, from the delight that Adam had expressed in Eve just a chapter ago. What a change from the oneness, the beauty, the joy, the self-giving of their relationship. Sin screws relationships up. It hurts others, it blames others, it manipulates others, it alienates others. So Adam and Eve's equal and reciprocal relationship degenerates into domineering power games and unhealthy dependency. And it's been that way ever since. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's not how God made it, that's how it became. All sin hurts. All sin alienates. People say what I do in private doesn't hurt anybody. Of course it does. It hurts you and that hurt affects everybody else. So many times people say, well, if I do it in the private place and it doesn't involve anybody else, it doesn't hurt anybody. Rubbish. All sin hurts. No sin is private. Take pornography, for example. Statistics say that the majority of men, even within the church, struggle with the issue of pornography. And we defend ourselves by saying it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just, of course it hurts. It hurts you. Does it help you develop intimacy with your wife? Of course not. It hurts her. You begin to hide. You keep distance. You say, well, I haven't got a wife. Well, statistically, one day you will have a wife. Does your addiction help you prepare for the woman God has for you? No, you'll bring that addiction into your new relationship. It hurts you. It hurts them. It hurts everybody. You say, I don't have a wife and I never intend to have a wife. But at the moment you see a woman as less than someone in the image of God, all your relationships with women are affected and people get hurt. 
Another example, people say, well, I, I, I'm not hurting anybody with the anger or the bitterness or the grudge that I, that I hold against someone else. It's just in my head, it's just in my heart. Of course it is. It's hurting you, it's hurting God, and it's hurting the person that you're putting this barrier up in front of. It hurts. All sin hurts. Nothing is private. All sin screws us up. And so they fell out with God. And they fell out within themselves and they fell out with each other. And so humanity started waging war. With one another we became strangers and enemies instead of friends. Conflict and division instead of harmony and peace. Racial prejudice and antagonism. Social divisions, the haves and the have-nots. The conflict in all human groups. Sin brings exploitation. We use others. We exploit them to bolster our own self-esteem. To justify our own evil ways. Sin brings fear of others. We fear that they might see us and know us. We fear that our weaknesses might be exposed. So we try and project a different image. The image of myself that I want others to believe in than who I truly am and this huge distance is created with everybody alienated from others alienated from creation work's going to be hard the ground's not going to do what it was meant to do it'll produce thorns and thistles it'll be jolly hard work to uh, make a living out of the ground an alienation between man and creation stewardship has given way to exploitation The earth is plundered without or with little thought to its created beauty or intrinsic value. Stewardship has given way to pollution, the selfish, rapacious use of uh, raw materials for our own gain. We battle with nature rather than live in harmony with it. And then suddenly out of nowhere there are these disasters like in Indonesia this last week. So it was nobody's fault. Whose fault was that? It must be God's fault. Why did he create a world that was all screwed up like this? The Bible says he didn't create a world that was all screwed up like this. He created a world that was perfect. And Paul writes to the Christians in Rome to try and explain that because of human sin, that the world itself, the natural world, has come all uh, disentangled, it's screwed up and no longer works like it should. And the creation, not just human beings, the creation itself waits for the day it will be remade, waits for the day it will be liberated from the bondage that sin has created. And then the final catastrophic alienation from life itself. When you eat, you will surely die. Sin has alienated us from the eternal. Suddenly our days are numbered. Every tick of the clock moves us inescapably to our close, when all our plans, all our purposes, all our dreams hit a full stop. Huge anxiety in our world. Because the moment we are born, we face the reality of death. Death confronts us like nothing else does. Confronts us with our insignificance and our weakness. Confronts us with the folly of our pretension to greatness. We were never meant to die. That's why it hurts so much. That's why it causes such anxiety and pain. It was never meant to be like this. And we've become alienated from the very life we were given to live. What's our response? 
What should our response be as Christian people to what we understand has happened in this world? Well, just two things uh, to say. The first is this. We must fight against it. If this world is not how God intended it to be, then that is our mandate to fight against every evil, every suffering, uh, and all the death that is raging out of control on planet Earth. It's one of the reasons that it's so important for us to understand where the responsibility lies for the way the world is. If we think that the world is as God intended it to be, then there is no hope. If God made it this way, then this is the way. That's it. Period. Over. And don't get excited about heaven either, because God's happy with it just the way it is. But if the way things are is an affront to God, if the way things are angers Him and sickens Him and saddens Him, if He Himself will not rest until this world is restored, then when we fight against evil and injustice, when we reach out to the hurting and oppressed, when we reach across relational divides, when we meet the needs of those who are suffering, hurting and dying, the whole of heaven is on our side. It was never meant to be like this. It should not be like this. And we, the people of God, more than any people on earth, should not accept the status quo. Remember how outraged Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus. deeply moved in spirit, literally outraged, he's furious. What was he furious about? Why was he weeping? Was he weeping because Lazarus had died? No. He knew he was about to bring Lazarus back to life. He was weeping for the way that, the, that this world has become so corrupted that people have to face the agony of death, uh, the, the frustration and pain of losing people they love. He was crying out for what the world had become. In the film Babe, now I tend to hate films where animals speak because animals don't speak. (laughs) Margaret Smith, laughing the loudest, loves films where animals speak and Babe was one of her favourite films. (coughs) Excuse me. The duck worked out that the animals on the farm, if they didn't perform a useful function were eventually killed. The horse pulls the plough and carries the heavy stuff, so the horse will survive. The pigs do nothing, so they end up as pork pies. Ending up as pate is not a pleasing prospect for the duck. So he decides he needs to invent a purpose for his existence in order not to be eliminated from the scenario. So he hits on the idea of pretending to be the rooster, waking up everybody in the morning on the idea that his service to the community will be so invaluable, therefore he will uh, survive. The horse disapproves of such positioning and pretense and says rather pompously, the secret of happiness is to accept that the way things are is the way things are. To which the duck replies, hmm, well the way things are, stinks. The doctrine of the fall reminds us every day to say, the way things are, stinks. And to live for a different vision. 
to work, to pray, to long, to look for the way it was intended, not settle for the way that it is. We must challenge and confront the way things are. And then finally, we must be freed from it. I need to be freed from this world. Don't you? We're trapped. We're trapped. The Bible says we're trapped and unable to live right. So that even the things we want to do, we know what we should do. But it's not that easy, is it? We find ourselves unable to do the things that we know we should do. We're trapped. Jesus said, well, it's because you're a slave to sin. Say, I'm not a slave to anybody. I am totally free to do as I choose. No, you're not. That's a lie. That's a deception. You are not totally free at all. You are trapped. If you were totally free, you would make different choices lots of the time. You're not free. Neither am I. We're under a curse. What we've brought to this world through the fall is that this world is now trapped in its alienation from God and all that we've been talking about. We're under the rule of darkness. Who won in Genesis 3? Was it the man and the woman or the crafty serpent? We invited the serpent to rule the roost. We said that his way is the way we will choose. We've invited the rule and reign of darkness in our world. And the result should therefore not surprise us. And the Bible says we're all dying. We're all dying. It's grim. I'm trapped. I'm enslaved. I'm under a curse. I'm under the rule of darkness. I'm dying. That, that's what it means to live on earth. This earth that is so painfully distraught, distorted and fallen from what God made it uh, to be. We need to be rescued to be saved, to be liberated from all that sin and death has brought. And that's what the Bible promises. For he, that's Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion, the rule, the reign of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. How did he rescue us? He took your sin and my sin, the sin of this world, and he nailed it to the cross. The death he died, he died to sin. God of heaven has killed the reality of sin once for all. Therefore, we might be able to say that we've been set free from sin and become slaves not to sin but to God. The benefit is is the life of holiness and the result is eternal life. How? By turning around. It's time to turn around. It's time just to say, I've had it with this world. I've had it. I've, I've given it my best shot to try and sort things out and I can't. I'm trapped. I'm stuck here. And the invitation is not to try hard. It's not to go home and make a list of the things that you shouldn't do or the things that you should do. It's not that. You'll never do it. You're trapped. You're wrapped up in sin like a garment, all of us. The Bible says turn. You can turn. You can turn. That your sins might be wiped out, that you might be free from their power and that times of refreshing may come. Why did uh, Jesus come to destroy what Satan did in Genesis chapter 3. There's some lovely, lovely parts of Genesis chapter 3 that point forward to the coming of Jesus. Read some of them uh, uh, when, when you get home. Find them, look for them. I tell you, three or four lovely moments, even in Genesis chapter 3, where God is beginning to promise something. I'll give you one. God, before he sends them out, covers their nakedness, their shame. Because one day he'll cover us in a robe of righteousness. I'll give you two, because I'm too excited about them. Why did God, we see it as really negative, God sends them out of the garden. 
and puts us, oh, that's a horrible, nasty God. He sent them out of the garden. Why? So that they would die. If they stayed in the garden, they would eat the tree of life and live forever in this corrupt way. How good would that be? Not at all. He sent them out so that they might die, that we might rise again in him. Hallelujah. Our very death becomes a means of escape, such as the graciousness of the living God. We have acted in history, but the last act, just like the first, will be God's. And no longer will there be any curse, and there'll be no more night. No more night. Let's pray. Lord, you're asking me to take responsibility for my part in the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. I have to declare that I'm in. I could pretend. The Bible says some people pretend that there's no darkness in them. They just deceive themselves. Or I could be real. I could be real about who I am and the way I'm trapped. I could be real about the things that are far from the mark. I could be real about my partnership in all that's gone wrong in this world. I can blame you. I can blame my circumstances. I can blame who, uh, 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 who, the people around me. I can blame my children, my wife, my parents, my sister, my brother. I can blame, blame, blame if I like. But it'll get me nowhere. Or I can this morning just honestly and openly say, yeah, I'm in. I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. I've all too easily and too willingly said yes to what God has said no to. But I'm so encouraged. I'm so encouraged that even in those moments of judging the world, of pushing them out of the garden, even in those moments when their relationships were collapsing with each other and with you, you offered them grace. You looked forward to a time that Jesus would come to rescue us from all that we've become. You point us forward to a day when there'll be no longer any curse, to a day when there'll be no more night. I long for that day. Thank you that I'm now part of the rescue. I don't need to be part of the problem, but in Jesus, you've lifted me out of the problem into the solution. You call me to wage war against the darkness as children of light. You call me to stand against evil and the whole of heaven will be on my side as I'm now a child of God. No longer part of the problem, but part of the solution. Lord, keep rescuing me, please. Keep lifting me out of the trap of this world that I might be part of this new age that you're bringing to birth, longing for the day when there'll be no more curse and no more night. Help me to be a child of the light and to celebrate your coming. And help me to be a child of the cross, to understand what it cost, to believe what you went through as you died. You died to sin. For me, it was my sin, Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Help me to live in the power of what the cross has achieved and to know that resurrection life even now bubbling up within that I might genuinely pray with my words and with my life, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But instead of lamenting the gap, we would rebuild and see glimpses of this world becoming all that's in your heart for her and us to be. We gather around your table where you made it all possible as we sing together.